You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that in your mercies you've brought us together again on this Lord's Day. And Lord, we want to thank you for the ways in which you've blessed us with our families and especially how you've given us mothers. And and so, Lord, I pray that today you will meet us in this class and open our hearts and our minds to understand what you're teaching us out of Luke's gospel and give us ready hearts and feet uh, to follow after what you have shown us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, well, according to my my calendar, um, next week is the last Sunday of this class. Uh, so, And I, I plan on next Sunday doing Luke 15, all the parables of lostness, uh, the coin, the sheep, and the, the, the prodigal son. Um, so that's, that's how we'll land the plane. Um, I actually think this is one of the few classes that I've taught at the Advent that actually has an identifiable scope and sequence in the sense that it, it started and ended at a good spot. I mean, I never... Um, there's an old old saying about writing books that books are never never finished. They're like ships. They're abandoned. Um, and I, I kind of feel that way about my Advent classes. You know, just kind of abandon these things and move on. Um, Anyhow, but it's it's uh, it's been a delight. Today we're in Luke 14, and we're we're going to try to engage two parables. We'll see how that goes. Um, we're doing the parable um, in Luke 14, verse seven. About it's a kind of a strange parable. Actually, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but about the host who invites people to come to dinner, and people who sit sit at the best spots on the table, and then we'll end with the parable of the great banquet, which comes right on the heels of this. Um, so let me get some contextual matters first. This has been our, our, our course over the past few weeks to kind of give a sense of the context of what's going on. If you remember from our parables last week, we were dealing with Jesus' reorientation of our expectations about what the kingdom of God is all about. Um, and I think that's a very important interpretive lens for us to bring to reading the parables, thinking through them in terms of the kingdom of God and Jesus speaking to us through storied form um, what the kingdom of God is all about. Um, and he's reorienting us from beginning to end about our own uh, preconceptions about what God's kingdom is going to be and what it's going to look like. And we bring a set of expectations to the table about God and his kingdom that Jesus in his incarnation meets us face to face around the dinner table. I'll talk more about that with Luke's gospel, but more often than not around the dinner table. And he has an intense conversation with us again in these gospels, reorienting us to what the kingdom of God is really all about. And we and, I, and we've all been in this Christian business, many of you, for a long time. And I've just even been reminded this morning, thinking through some of these dynamics, that we have to be reminded and reoriented again and again about what God's kingdom is about and where our priorities and our own lives, vis-a-vis that reality, how those are in accord with one another. So I'm, I've, I've, we'll, we'll try to think about some of these things today. So contextually, though, at the end of Luke 13, I wanted to read these verses to you that Jesus says about Jerusalem. These are very touching verses, but it also will help you get a sense 
of what Jesus is going to be talking about as he moves into Luke 14. And this is what Jesus says. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I would have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, um, and, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, oh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we go into the next section in chapter 14. I wanted to read this to you as well. On Sabbath, or one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Now, I, I want to stop here because this is, um, I, I don't want to riff too much on this. Uh, but what a fascinating verse that's to set up this interaction that Jesus is about to have with the Pharisee. So many parts of the story are left unclear to us about what are the events that would actually lead to this. Because I, I was reading this morning, again, you, 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 my, one of my favorite theologians, Karl Barks, was speaking about the nature of Jesus' interaction with various movements and groups. And the word that, Je- that the Bart uses to describe the way that Jesus engages the Levites and, and their progeny, the scribes, and their sort of countergroup, the Pharisees, who are both trying to lay claim to uh, the purity of, of Torah observance in the first century world, or the Essenes, uh, the zealots who were wanting to bring in uh, the Messianic kingdom by force and political assertion. That, 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 the, so there's all these various groups that are present within the first century world, the Sadducees, and we can begin to list them. How does Jesus sort of line up with these various uh, groups, political groups, religious groups that are around. And the word that Bart uses, and I thought it was so helpful, is the word freedom. He's free from all of them. Um, as a matter of fact, I think we can often view Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees as a kind of um, Lone Ranger, white horse, black horse uh, kind of scene. Uh, that the Pharisees are the obvious antagonists throughout the Gospels, and Jesus is the protagonist, and he's in this sort of heated exchange to set them right. And yet, we, we get them challenged with that reduction as well. Why? Jesus is sitting with the Pharisee in John uh, chapter 3, explaining to Nicodemus under the cover of night about how he can be born again. Um, Jesus can engage the Pharisees as, uh, as the other, but also not as the other. He can engage the, the scribes and the Levites as well. Jesus is free. He's not beholden to any of those groups, and he's not necessarily set out over against them either. He's engaging them in freedom, again, to reorient them. And that's what's so fascinating about this scene right here. Here's Jesus having dinner with the Pharisee. He's at their house having table fellowship. Now, this is important because this week and next week, when we enter into the discussion about the prodigal son and the lost coin and the lost sheep, um, all of this will be centering in some sense around table fellowship in Luke's gospel. We can't even get out of Luke 2, I don't think, without seeing Jesus' ministry in the, in the gospel of Luke especially being a ministry that's taking place around a table. This was a key location for social interaction in the first century world, sitting around the table. And what we're going to find as we get into Luke chapter 15 is part of the reason, I would say the the driving rationale, 
behind why Jesus gives these three, I think, most famous parables, the ones that we know more than any other, the, the motivating factor that, that leads Jesus to give these parables is this issue right here. Jesus, you're having table fellowship. Which means, Jesus, you're enjoying the Messianic kingdom and the table fellowship and the meals that come along with that, but you're eating with all the wrong people. This is the problem. You're, we know what you're doing. But you're eating with the wrong people. That's what's going to challenge Jesus to think through these things um, theologically in Luke 15. But I, I don't even think I ever noticed this before. I've spent a lot of time in Luke 15. I think all of us have. But right before Luke 15, 1, when they're pressing Jesus on this matter, you're eating with the wrong people. You're hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Right in the previous chapter, chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus is having table fellowship with the Pharisee as well. Um, Again, not to, not to um, steal our thunder from next week, but isn't it fascinating the way in which the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son, how it ends. Now, there's a, there's a party that's going on for the lost son. And here is the father talking to the older son who won't go into the party, and he's telling them him in this unresolved narrative, everything that I have is yours. There's the, the, the lost son and the, the younger son and the lost older son are both deeply loved by the Father. And I think this is so beautiful to see Jesus is sitting at table fellowship with the Pharisee and he's there. Knowing, as, as the narrative tells us, that he's being watched closely. Who wants to go to dinner like that? Right? Um, and you've all experienced it in one way or another, right? Um, the, 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 the girl or the young woman or the man that you're dating and you've never met the parents before and you've been invited to dinner. We all, you can picture it right now, can't you? And you know, before you even walk into the house or the restaurant, you will be watched closely, right? <laughs> and it's horrible. You just can't wait for it to be all over. Um, that's the scenario that we have here in this very intimate social interaction. Jesus is being watched Closely by this Pharisaic group. So verse two. Now Jesus, and again, I hate to. Re- I'm, I'm turning into an old like my father. I repeat the same stories over and over again. He'll, he'll hear this. I love you, Dad, but you do that. Um, uh, I, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Jesus will ruin your dinner, dinner parties, um, and and he's he's about to do it again. I mean, this was just a nice little social, and and he will just absolutely. Ruin it. So when you have, when you want a, a nice sedentary evening with family and friends, just leave Jesus outside and it'll be fine. Um, so here he goes. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but they remained silent. Now, this should have been an easy answer, but they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and he sent him on his way. And then Jesus asked them, if any one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? I mean, another, another way of putting this is uh, your, your son, your infant son just fell down the well. Um, is it inappropriate according to Torah for you to go in there and to get uh, that young, your, your young son? I mean, the obvious answer is no, because we're weighing the law according to a, a certain scale of, of weightedness. Um, and and they're, they're not getting this. And they had nothing to say. Verse 7, And when he noticed 
how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited to. And if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then, humiliated, you have to take the least important place. Uh, But when you are invited, take uh, the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves uh, will be exalted. And now Jesus is going to explain that parable. It's... This is again one of the beauties of these of these of this parabolic discourse, this method that Jesus have, has of teaching. The, the, the imagery in the story is readily available. We, we don't have to work hard to get the scene right. I um, I was either reading or listening uh, to um, a review of a novel, um, not a novel, a, a, um, a biography on Winston Churchill, or maybe it was on Maria Callas. I can't remember how it was, but I heard the story that the opera singer Maria Callas was traveling by boat with Winston Churchill after um, the end of World War II. And if you know anything about uh, Maria Callas, as, as I know very little, but the, the, the great opera singer, um, as, as many opera singers do, she, she knew she was great. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and she was apparently, if, there is a, if diva can be predicated on an opera singer, Maria Callas is in the, in the dictionary. Right. Um, so apparently the story is, you know, they're traveling around on the boat and they're coming into port and and she literally asked one of her, you know, entourage, why do they all keep doing this to me? In other words, the victory sign. Like why she she thought that they were they were all applauding her and she had no idea that it was for Winston Churchill, right? That was the thing. Um, that's embarrassing. I mean, I think this is the scene here, right? You, you're, you're in a, a social situation. You place yourself at the head table. And then in a discreet but awkward moment, someone has to come to this person and say, oh, by the way, you're not here. You're, you're over there. But we're so glad you came. In the South, we know how to really kill somebody doing that, right? <laughs> we're so glad you came, but you're over there, I'm afraid. Um, so oh, so that's, that's the scene that we have here. And then Jesus, he gives an explanation. He's not, by the way, going to give an explanation of the next parable we'll talk about. Sometimes Jesus doesn't explain the parable. Sometimes he does. This is one where he explains it. Um, those who humble themselves will be exalted. And those who exalt themselves will be humbled. He's leaning into, again, this setting, this sort of Pharisaic setting about religious and national identity. Those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves uh, will be humble, um, uh, will, will be honored. So a place at the table for the humble. That's what I think is going on in this parable, the first one. There's a place at the table. There's a place at the kingdom table for those who come to the table in an act of humility, who recognize themselves for who they are. Again, Jesus at this point in time is leaning into his identity as a prophet of Israel. Um, For example, um, the whole book of Isaiah is a book that's dealing with, at its core, the arrogance and the the hubris of the people of God. Isaiah chapter 2 ends with the prophet saying, you have raised and exalted yourself. Um, If I had the board in here, I'd write it up. Those two terms, raised and exalted, become catchphrases throughout the whole of the book of Isaiah. Because if you remember, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, raised and exalted. 
Um, in other words, only Israel's God is raised and exalted. Uh, and whenever we raise or exalt ourselves in some act of self-assertion or self-fulfillment, when that happens, the prophets are very clear that things have gotten out of order in our relationship with God. And what does God do all throughout the book of Isaiah? Uh, the Lord is presented as the great tree feller. Whenever Israel raises her tree and gets really strong and proud of her branches, Isaiah chapter 2, which then goes into Isaiah chapter 10, which goes into Isaiah 11, will tell you that God comes in and in an act of judgment, He cuts them down because only the Lord is exalted. Only He is the one that can be identified as one raised and exalted. Think about the identity of Jesus here that's going on with this parable. Philippians chapter 2, right? I hand... Um, um, uh, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He was in the form of a servant. He didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God, but he took upon him the form of a servant and became human and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And now, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Jesus, in this parable here, is giving us an account and an identity, if we can put it this way, a narrative script of his own person and work. He's, he's showing the way in which God brings His own kingdom about in the world and in the person and work of Jesus. How does He do this? By humbling Himself. By coming down and taking the form of a servant. By not thinking it um, beneath Him to relinquish his, his claim to a certain kind of authority and taking on human flesh even to the point of a cruel and embarrassing and shameful death. The death of a cross. Um, and that, that, that's the, the, the pattern of humility and exaltation that we have in Jesus' own life. And Jesus in this parable here is saying, and by the way, that's how the kingdom works. Because that's how God works. Watch my life. You will follow me and you will follow me on a road of humility. And at the end of the road of humiliation is one of exaltation. That's the dynamic that you have working here um, in this particular uh, parable. So Jesus uh, uh, leads us into that. The second parable, though, and we'll move on because I know where time is pressed. The second parable is the parable of the great banquet. And this is the one that gets a lot of airtime, and rightly so. When one of those at the table with him, heard this, he said to Jesus, uh, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, you know, not really liking religious platitudes very much, and you want to kind of pull this poor fellow aside and say, he doesn't like that. Um, but he, doesn't, he must not know, and Jesus replies uh, with a little story. So there was a certain man who was preparing a great banquet, and he invited uh, many guests. At the time of the banquet, he set his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Now, the first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Now, still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. That's probably the best of the three excuses. Then verse 21, the servant came back and reported all this to the master and then the owner of the house became angry and he ordered his servant go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. 
Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So this is a parable that remains at the narrative level. And no explanation is given to this parable. We're forced to think through the implications of what's going on here. I do think it's important for us to remember the context of Jerusalem that we had at the end of, of chapter 13. Jesus is still speaking specifically about Jerusalem and, and, and an Israel question. That's before him as well. The, the excuses that are given are twofold. One is the excuse of possessions. I've got responsibilities, uh, um, financial responsibilities that will keep us from coming. And the second excuse was family involvement. Now, one thing to think through in this parable is this, and I think this is an important point. Neither family involvement nor possessions are to take priority over discipleship. Now, this is hard uh, because we have to think through um, these things, and and the Bible can, again, make us feel uncomfortable with these things. We're going to flip some pages here, and we'll hear Jesus say, no one can come after me unless he hates his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters. I mean, you, you hear you, there are verses in the Bible that you wish weren't there. Um, and that that's almost feels to be like one of them. And what, what do we do with this kind of leaning against our basic instinct to value certain things in certain ways and understand how those relate to the kingdom of God? Jesus challenges us to think of these in terms of a proper ordering. Now, we've talked enough in here about Augustine to know that St. Augustine, I think, is the greatest help from the tradition for us to think through these things. But when family or possessions become ends unto themselves, and I would say any good and perfect gift that God gives to us, when they become ends and not uses toward the end of God and His kingdom and the enjoyment of Him, uh, then we've got things mixed up and Jesus will lean into that. Family, family, possessions, a new wife. Um, these are not excuses for uh, a, a lack of discipleship. I think that's what, what Jesus is, is speaking of here. Then we see as well uh, in this particular section that shame and honor are so central to this gospel, I mean to this parable. Um, social status and location, shame and honor. For someone to be able to throw a feast shows that this person was of some means and he probably invited those from his same social class. They were unwilling to come and not wanting to be in a situation where he was in probably a bridal feast of some sort. He compels the poor, the crippled, the lame, and any passerby to come in. Um, saying at the end here that those who are invited will not get invited again. So what what's going on here? Two things, and then we'll maybe open it for some questions. Two things. Number one. I do think we need to think of all of these parables in Luke chapter 14 against the backdrop of Isaiah. Can I just read something to you here out of Isaiah 25? Isaiah 25 is praise to the Lord for, again, His future coming kingdom. And listen to what it says, verse 4. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Uh, verse 6, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, 
and the finest of wines. I mean, that is some charcuterie platter right there. Now, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. So what do we have here, even in Isaiah 25, is this presentation of that that future coming day of the Lord. When the mountain of God and the mountains of this earth merge in such a way as to be indistinguishable the one from the other. And if you remember our little lesson in Jewish eschatology last week, what we emphasized then was what the Jews expected in the first century world to happen at the end of time was happening in the middle of time in the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus' banquet parable here is is a large telling that the promised messianic meal that he would be bringing when the mountain of God met the mountain of this earth, it's happening right now. This is the moment. And um, if I can quote uh, Klein Snodgrass, who I've leaned heavily on in my studying the parables, this, this is what he says about Luke 14. God is giving a party. Are you going to come? That's his question. God's giving a party. Are you going to come? And here's where I think the parable leaves us. The people who get invited um, to the eschatological banquet um, to the final banquet that I guess we've described because of the book of Revelation as the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is built off of this scene out of Isaiah 25. The people who get to come to that banquet are twofold. Number one, those who are sick and know that they need to be healed. And number two, those that are sinners who know that they need to be forgiven. Those are the people that get to come. God's throwing a party and He wants to know if you're going to come. And the people who get to come are those who are who recognize that they're sick and they need to be healed and they're sinners and they need to be forgiven. And what you have the scene in this parable is and God's banquet hall is open and ready to be filled to the fullest with expanding capacities for those who recognize themselves in this way who come and to see themselves in need. Now, put yourself around the dinner table as Jesus is sharing this story. Right? Can you sense it now? Um, he's there with the Pharisees. Um, those who, and let's not question in any way um, the sincerity. One might even say the integrity of a Pharisaic view of attendance to keeping God's law. These are the folks who recognize that God has spoken and they want in ways that might get a little bit um, over the top from our perspective, but they want to order their whole lives to God's Torah. They want society to be ordered according to God's instructions. And they're happy to level judgment against others who don't do so. And we don't need to question their sincerity or their integrity in that. But Jesus is pretty clear contextually here in Luke 14 and as we get into Luke 15, that that attendance to Torah observance, had left them in a place where they did not think that they were sick and needing to be healed, and they did not think that they were sinners who needed to be forgiven. And Jesus leans heavily into that particular religious dynamic and exposes it for what it is, and He tells them, the kingdom of God is here, we're throwing lots of meals, I am the messianic head of the table, this is my banquet table, this is, this is Isaiah 25 fulfilled, and those who are going to get to come to this are those who are sick, and they know they need to be healed, and they're sinners, and they know that they need to be forgiven. 
It's a really powerful statement from Jesus here in this parable that put in the social and religious location where Jesus is sitting around the table, it really is a kind of bomb uh, that's being dropped right there in the middle of the scene. And it sets us up for next week. And I'm going to read to you the first part of Luke 15 because I want you to remember this. This is what Jesus says at the beginning of the famous parable of the lost sheep coin and then the, the prodigal son. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And from there, Jesus is going to tell the three most famous parables that he's ever told. Because Jesus wants to emphasize, and Luke is helping us know that Jesus in his earthly ministry emphasized that, yes, you are right to understand that the kingdom of God is now among you. And yes, you are right to think and understand that I am constructing and presenting my own story and identity as the Messiah who's sitting at that table, bringing in that eschatological future final day moment. And the people who get to sit at that table with me are the people who recognize that they need a Savior. And number two, they recognize that they're sick and they need to be healed. So that sort of sets us up for next week as we go into these uh, final three um, parables. Okay? Now, I do think we have a few minutes, right? Do we? Yeah. Any, anybody want to ask fire question around? Want to bat anything around? Yes, ma'am. Um, I know that the Gospels parallel each other and overlap each other and various yeah. Yes, there's there's a parallel account of this parable in Matthew's Gospel as well, and and um, and there's interesting points of distinction between them as well. But that that's another part of this that's not in Luke's Gospel, and that's one of the debates that scholars have is whether or not this is said in a different way at a different moment, or whether or not these are two parables that are being shaped in different ways in conversation the one with the other. So this is the question that you're asking is a, is a live scholarly kind of question that people wrestle with. Um, but it is interesting, I think, to sort of uh, bring Matthew's um, understanding of this parable into play here and recognize that they're being given new clothing as well. Yeah, I think that's rather beautiful, isn't it? It, it just it adds, I think, to the scene that those who come in, they come in knowing that they're sick and they need to be forgiven, and they also come in knowing that they need to be dressed and healed. And that that's, that's very beautiful, actually. And you can imagine how the Christian interpretive tradition has picked that up um, and understood the implications of of the gospel as it pertains to being clothed as we come into the bank. We, we don't get to come in on our own accord, accord or within the frame of our own story and narrative before we met the Savior. We get to come in the way in which He, he clothes us or, or we, we don't get to come at all. And I think that's the... That's the sort of hard part of this. You don't, you don't get to come at all unless you come the way in which God tells you you, you have to come. Anybody else want to fire something around? Something you're frustrated about? Yes, ma'am. What are you frustrated about, Joy? Why do you think that he started with the people that have told the story in the way that um, that he started with people that wouldn't want to come? Why wouldn't he just tell the story saying that yeah. this rich man yeah. provided a banquet for yeah. the, the blind, the lame? Yeah. I think it's part of this larger Jerusalem slash um, Pharisaic polemic that Jesus is a part of. He's he's saying something really targeted in an indirect way, as we've talked about throughout this class. He's doing it in an indirect way through this story, but he's letting them know 
in effect, those who are sitting around watching him carefully, that they're the ones who've been invited, um, but they're refusing to come. Yeah, Emily. Um, just an observation. I had never noticed before the theme throughout Jesus' Jesus' parables of feasting and rejoicing. Yes. And what yeah. what 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 one what one needs to do to have a seat at the feast, yeah. and how often being in the presence of the Father yeah. is is cause for rejoicing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something, isn't it? Because um, there aren't really any any narrative portrayals in the Gospels of Jesus smiling or laughing. Has that ever troubled you? You know, it's like it, it bothers me a little. I mean, I, I, um, in every Jesus movie we have, except I think for Franco Zeffirelli's, he doesn't smile or laugh. He's not giddy, but they all have Jesus laughing at some point, cutting up with his disciples. But he doesn't doesn't do that. I mean, we don't really get that sense here. Yet we do find him in social locations that are properly identified as rejoicing context. Weddings uh, around the table, social interactions that would demand that kind of full-on human engagement. And now, I don't, I don't know why the Gospels don't have portrayals of Jesus smiling more. Um, I wish they were, they, it was there, but it's not. But I do know that we find Jesus in places all the time where lots of smiling is going on. And it's interesting, isn't it, that at some point in time, um, his detractors say say that Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard. I've always found this. I mean, can you imagine that? Jesus calling Jesus a drunk and a glutton. Um, well, he. I mean, in Luke's gospel, you can't turn a page without him being around the table, eating and fellowshipping. It's fascinating, actually. Um, it's good. It's good for me. Yeah. You mentioned this parable that's got a lot of airtime. I'm just wondering, in the history of the church, is there a reason certain parables are better known than others? Did they did it evolve organically in terms of? The ones we know better, or were there selections made early on in the history of liturgy and church that cause us to know the prodigal son better than the least? Well, that's a great question, and I, I don't think I have a good answer to that. I will say that there's an, a patristic instinct of reading the Bible would be one that would not give more airtime to one parable over against others as if some are more important, as a kind of canon within a canon. Um, the one thing I love about the church fathers, and I emphasize this to my students at Beeson, is they they genuinely believed in toda scriptura, all of it. I mean, they, and we will jump over things. I mean, to hard text, we'll go to that and go, let's just go to the next paragraph. You know, that's kind of a, a church father couldn't do that. And in fact, a church father would see that hard text as an opportunity for spiritual engagement. This is really hard, so God must really want us to get into it, right? And that that's the end. We we we're kind of weak when it comes to some of these things. But as far as the, the prodigal son, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm curious to know because, of course, it's, it's, a, it's long. Um, so it's a longer narrative. It's given a lot of airtime here. It has a certain kind of visceral quality to it that I think touches the nerve like other parables don't. Um, and I have to think that it has something to do with the history of art as well. I mean, you think about like Rembrandt's famous uh, par- uh, uh, painting of the Prologue. I've got a copy of that in my office hanging, and um, and many others as well. So I think the, the Prodigal has been given to us through other forms than just the theologians and the preachers. It's been given to us in a lot of stained glass and and art. But I think the parable of the lost sheep is probably equally so. You got to go. Go get your kids, and yeah. <laughs>
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.